Welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive, brought to you by Living Leadership, where every fortnight we share with you a sermon from the late Nigel Lee to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Here's today's message. I've really been struck this morning by the number of kids, but before long, it'll be the adults that have to go out and the kids that, that stay in. Uh, you are a very energetic <laughs> congregation, and you're building the most incredible youth work in the future, I can see. Thanks for the invitation to say a few words about what I do, and I want to um, thank you very much for your kindness and your, your support as a church uh, for Trish and myself and the work that we, we do. You support us financially, some of you may not have realised that. Uh, we're grateful you support us in prayer. And you support us in a number of other ways, which, um, I mean, it's, it's very good. I, I arrived this morning, you know, I, there's various stuff going on, and I'm having to rush up to North Yorkshire uh, this afternoon unexpectedly to cope with a bit of crisis of my parents. And you support us um, emotionally, you know, wrong. You know, before you know where you are, he's got his arm around you and he's praying for you, and it's, it's, it's very good. And uh, I appreciate that as well. Circumstances have changed for uh, my wife and me since we were members of the church with you. Not just that we're part of Myton. Um, I used to work with something called the Whitfield Institute in Oxford, which was a base, really. It was an umbrella, and it allowed me to do the various things that I do, which I'll come to in a minute. Um, But that institute has basically collapsed. Um, the funding disappeared, the director went to America, the co-director went to Scotland, and even I only was left. <laughs> and um, at that point they closed it. Um, <laughs> I, I really feel ministered to and valued by <laughs> recent events. But um, actually, even though that has happened and the umbrella's gone, uh, the ministry remains the same. And um, what I do is basically about four things, and I'll just run through them quickly so that you know what it is that you're, you're supporting and praying for. I work with Myton probably about 50% of the time. Um, yeah, I think good local churches are absolutely vital to the survival of Christianity in these islands. Because they tell a different story from the picture that you get in the media. And uh, the shenanigans that can sometimes go on in in the larger denominations and uh, the people who are identified with formal Christianity in this country. Often the the media abuse and the view uh, in, in the streets and, and the towns and villages of our country is pretty much that, well, we used to be a Christian country, but we aren't now. But good local churches tell a different story. And, and you spread a kind of... Um, fireside warmth and glow around your neighbourhoods if you're good. And so I'm very committed to being involved in my local church. That it might care for people and tell a story uh, about the gospel that makes sense to people and is inviting and welcoming and helpful. It it is what our British society needs. Good local churches. So I'm I'm thoroughly involved and, and happily to be involved there might in about 50% of the time. I do three other things. There's um, preaching and teaching in a variety of settings uh, around the world. By this time next week, for instance, I shall be in Russia. 
a big student conference, well, two conferences back to back. Some of those students will have traveled to get to that conference for five days. You know, you know, on a train from sort of eastern Siberia. Can you imagine going, going to a conference for five days and then another five days to get home for a five-day conference? And they hardly go to bed. They, they, they're so excited to be with each other that they don't sleep. They stay up all night chatting. And it's a bit discouraging for the preacher to watch them catching up, you know, <laughs> during, <laughs> during the Bible team. But anyway, you know, um, fantastic. Uh, over Easter, I'll be in Australia. Um, again, preaching and teaching. And you, you meet people that come in to some of these. There's a big Easter convention down in the state of Victoria near Melbourne. Some of those um, farmer types, this is their one time in the year of getting Christian fellowship and input. They might live, you know, on some sheep station 50 miles from the next nearest human being. If they, if they get a bad <laughs> preacher at Easter, you know, it's like a drought for the rest of the year. They got, I meet people who, about their only input is uh, when they get videos of songs of praise of British telly. Which varies, as you know. And so I go and try and help them. In the, um, in the summer, uh, I'll be in Malaysia for a, a student recruiting conference. We're seeing uh, people, young people, late teens and into their 20s, uh, who live in a very difficult environment in Malaysia. I mean, you know the country is officially Muslim, and uh, it's, it's tough to be part of a church there. But many of them are volunteering for mission and for service, and that is a kind of recruiting training conference. So I get called into a variety of situations, as well as conferences in this country, um, to preach and teach and encourage and help and do that sort of stuff. And I'm glad and delighted, really, at the support of those who make that possible. The third thing I do is broadcasting a certain amount. Um, Probably most of you uh, don't listen. Some of you don't even ever listen to Radio 4. Um, Mark, I, I wouldn't have expected you. I would have, uh, I would have wondered what on earth had happened in you if I found you ever listening to Radio Four. What do you listen to? Five Live, actually. Do you? Yes. Well, so do I. We are together in many things, Mark, and the fondness for Radio Five. But on in Radio Four Longwave um, every morning, it is in fact the longest-running regular program that the BBC has had. It has been going continuously every week since 1927. It's a thing called the Daily Service. And it has a pretty faithful audience, uh, quarter to ten until ten, um, every morning, uh, a faithful audience of about 250,000. And about every four to six weeks, uh, I'm on. It's live. It's scary. Uh, you have to end at a certain time because the pips are going to come. You've got... um, uh, We we do it from a church in Didsbury in South Manchester. The people who are sort of working the the levers and and knobs, you see, (laughs) Peter back there, um, you can't see them. They can see you on a little camera. They're away in some gloomy vestry at the back of the church. You've got these um, 9, 10, 12 singers in front of you who... The vast majority of them are not actually Christians, so far as I can tell. You've got a flamboyant sort of musical director, you know. Imagine ro- Roger on speed. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're sitting, 
trying to communicate something uh, that will bless the nation in this kind of context. But actually, it is remarkable. We, we had a feedback the other day. Um, one of our music directors was down in, in Cornwall. They were doing a thing from the Eden Project. And a man came up to him afterwards and said, are you the so-and-so chappy that um, works with the daily service? Yes, I am. He said, I want to say thank you. You've saved my life. And my wife had cancer for eight years. We could hardly get out. Uh, and every day, I just knew you were there. And we would listen. And so when they let evangelicals like me on, it's an opportunity to be taken. Because many of the people that, um, that do present that service probably wouldn't be quite as at home in a church like this as I am. Let me put it like that. But when you get an opportunity to, to say something from the scriptures, uh, it, it's, a, it's a blessing to people. And the fourth thing I do is a certain amount of, um, to give it a fancy name, consultancy with, with churches, church leaders um, around the country, trying to, again, help grow good body life in churches that are biblical, have got a heart for the gospel, that care for their community, that are heading for heaven, those kind of churches, to, to build them up. And um, so I do a certain amount of that. Now, we're going to um, read in a moment from the book of Joshua. If you'd like a Bible, beautiful system, hand up, well done. Boy, we Radio 5 listeners, we know what to do, don't we? <laughs> Page 216. Another one over there. Two, two, one, six. We're going to read from um, Joshua chapter 2 in a moment. When James, whom we may, I think, call and rightly imagine as perhaps the half-brother of Jesus himself, when he was writing his letter near the end of the New Testament, um, he was writing a passage uh, about what it really means to be a, a Christian. What it really, really means is not just saying you're a believer. That doesn't count for very much in uh, James's understanding. What God is looking for is evidence. And he has the right to, to look for evidence. We sing fine stuff. We, we read amazing things. We, we are in buildings with you know, stuff written on the walls outside for everybody to see. Right. Where's your evidence? And he's talking about um, two examples of believers who gave evidence that they were truly Christians. One was male, one was female. One was old Father Abraham, we may call him, who for decades had lived as a believer, feeding on the promises of God, living out what God had been saying to him. Remarkable man, demonstrating by his actions what he believed over, as I say, decades. And he was well over 100. Old Father Abraham. The other was Rahab. The woman about whom we're going to read, she had only just become a believer. Just become a Christian in, in the most raw, sort of unformed way you could imagine. I think probably Rahab is more or less the first convert in the Bible. I can't immediately think of any other earlier. She's the first person who came from a, an unbelieving Gentile sort of background and joined the people of God. She wasn't Jewish at all. Uh, in fact, she had been earning her living uh, as a prostitute. Rahab, to put it bluntly, kept a whorehouse in Jericho. 
And yet something wonderful happened in her life. And uh, she joined the people of God and became uh, very significant in, in the unfolding story of God's love for us and his purposes for us. Let's read from, from page 216, um, Joshua chapter 2. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, he had pa- it just means his father was called Nun. It doesn't mean his... Tickled one or two people in the front row. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. And go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went. And they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. (coughs) But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I I didn't know where they had come from, and at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them, quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men, the the, the soldiers from the king, set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And we've heard what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts sank, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Now she had said to them, go to the hills, so that the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. The men said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us, unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family, into your house, if anyone goes outside your house into the street, his blood will be upon his own head. We will not be responsible. As for anyone who is in the house with you, his blood will be on our head, if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell what we're doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be, as you say. So she sent them away. And they departed 
and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days, until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Supposing you feel God could never really use me in in any way that's important. I can understand how he could use this one and that one, even people associated with our church and so on, but God could never really use me uh, to do or accomplish anything significant. You might say, well, it's because I haven't been a Christian very long. Or I haven't had any training. God only uses people who've had certain kinds of... of I've never been to Bible school. In fact, I, I've, I don't even know the Bible very well. Hardly read very much of it at all. In fact... I've got some parts of my story that are really embarrassing. I, I'm ashamed. You, you don't want to know some of the stuff that I've done. I don't feel very gifted. I'm not good at many things. I feel tongue-tied compared with some. And anyway, I'm a woman. So what do you make if you start to say those kind of things of the story of Rahab? It, it's absolutely remarkable. Who was she? Some of the older versions of the Bible suggest that she was an innkeeper. <laughs> Not a bit of it. <laughs> this wasn't any sort of travel lodge like any I've stayed in. Please be assured. <laughs> <laughs> no, her establishment was an obvious place for spies to hide because strangers were her trade. A few questions would be asked if men were seen slipping in there uh, unknown uh, one evening. What sort of a person do you think she was? I mean, how do you imagine the kind of psychological and emotional makeup of someone in the sex trade like that? I mean, usually having multiple sexual partners is not the way to wholeness uh, and self-respect and dignity and emotional stability. She was a prostitute. She was also a fluent liar. God, the speed with which she's just... Butter wouldn't melt in her mouth telling fibs. But I suppose that also goes, goes with that kind of background and personality and, and experience. Without batting an eyelid, she says, oh yes, they were here. Yes, they stayed for a while, but they've moved on, as it was getting time to shut the gates. If you hurry... You know, they're upstairs hiding under the, the vegetables on the roof. And she, as quick and as smooth as anything, is directing those, um, those soldiers who are searching for these sort of SAS types on a reconnaissance uh, mission. She's directing them off down, down the street. Now, this isn't meant to be an encouragement to us in the art of lying. When Hebrews 11 talks about Rahab, it commends her for her faith, not for her fibs. God doesn't lie. He never tells lies, and we are encouraged in the New Testament um, to speak the truth in love. 
But what I'm trying to get across to you is that you don't have to be sorted and long on the road before God can use you. I was in this, uh, this church for, for many years. And I don't know, some of you may remember a long time ago, um, a marvellous couple that, that joined, the Stevenses. He was a young doctor. She was Italian. They were with us for a while, I think attached to uh, Warwick Hospital. They got, well, they got converted. Certainly she got converted here. I think he perhaps was already a Christian. And they used to sit all, almost always over that side, right, where you folks are sitting. Now, not long after she got converted, she came to me. She was a very, very sort of emotional, enthusiastic sort of type. Would have made a you know, musical director on the BBC. And, and, and she said she had an idea. Uh, yes, good. What's the idea? Well, she said, I, I've um, normally been, you know, I've got a group of housewives, and we, we normally play poker on a Thursday morning. A little gambling circle. And she said, we have decided, we, I think she just told them, we have decided that 10% of all our winnings are going to go to, <laughs> to world mission. World mission. So we're, we're going to regularly give, you know, to sort of world mission evangelistic and charitable causes. I, and I had to find the, you know, the uttermost depths of my tact to explain that, that a suburban housewives gambling circle might not be, you know, the best way forward. <laughs> you see, who'd put that idea into her heart? The devil? No. Her husband? Certainly not. No, I think it was probably um, something that she was responding to the Lord's opening of ideas and, and, and burden and vision and challenge. That they left, they moved on in, in the way of these doctors. They don't necessarily stay very long. But can you see, can you begin to see that God doesn't require perfection and sorted and theological heaviness before he can use you? before he can use you to touch other people. God used Rahab, this woman with this uh, extraordinary background, in quite a number of ways. Hospitality. I mean, she was good at it. <laughs> Protection for these uh, military reconnaissance types. And that's a great gift. She clearly encouraged them. Uh, she provided what they needed. Uh, she was good at the confidentiality that was required. In other words, there were things in her background, twisted and stained, maybe, but actually you could imagine those same things, redeemed and cleansed and useful. Can you see? God can take us, with all our humanness and, and, and some of the things that, you know, in Satan's hands uh, can lead to damage and pain and, and darkness and despair. But actually, God can take some of those things and make them beautiful and attractive. And even her background job had left some things in her which God could use. A great gift for hospitality. Secondly, her um, information that she passed on, on the morale, not only of Jericho, but actually of the whole surrounding area, was absolutely vital. She was able to tell these spies stuff because of, of what she knew that saved them from going on a sort of a secretive tour, creeping around the whole area at night in the darkness. They spent three days and went back. They said, no, we've, we've sussed it. We've actually found ourselves led to talk to someone who knows what people are saying and doing and thinking. This actually, this information which had come to her and the way she'd been responding to it is how she'd become a believer. She hadn't had Christians witnessing to her. 
Now, no one been, you know, sharing the four spiritual laws or the, the royal Romans route to heaven or any of these little things. No, she knew and recognized that God was at work. He was behind this coming invasion. Rahab had actually grasped, in her uneducated way, the theological significance of the whole book of Joshua. <laughs> when you think about it, God was behind the invasion. He would do it. He would give victory. God is God. And that's what she said. She, she, knew, she knew the stories that had been circulating, obviously, around that part of the world. She knew that 38 years before, or 40 years, whatever it was, God had dried up the Red Sea and brought Israel out of Egypt. She knew that at the beginning. She also knew that just recently, only months before, the Israelite army had defeated the two Amorite kings, first Sihon and then Og. This has happened at the end of the journey. She knew both of those things, and she recognized that God, well, she says at the end of, of verse 11, your God is the true God of heaven. There's no point in us acknowledging any other God or trying to stand against him. So, Rahab, even without anybody really talking to her very much, and even given her bad background, she was an independent thinker, and she was a very canny woman, and she recognized enough to turn in her heart from idolatry, the local idolatry, to gods and images and so on, to the true God, who is the God of Israel. She had an undeveloped faith, but it was a real faith, and she was waiting for the deliverance that was to come. Her information was a turning point in that whole invasion strategy. As I say, the spies had been sent to check out the whole land. They didn't. They just talked to Rahab. And then in verse 24, you can see what they reported back. The last verse of the chapter, they said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Well, they got that from Rahab. They spent the next two and a half days hiding in a cave up in the hills, <laughs> having a little bit of rest before they went home. She even became an example. This is the third thing. Uh, she became an example of taking tremendous risks as someone young in faith. I mean, actually, she committed treason, didn't she? If you expect her to be loyal to the king of Jericho, because she'd, she'd changed sides. She'd started to trust God. And eventually, having joined God's people like that in her heart, and, you know, Jericho fell, and, and uh, she was saved, and, and now she was with the people of God. She married a man called Salmon, she became mother to a man called Boaz. Does that ring any bells? He married Ruth, another foreigner. You imagine, <laughs> I was sitting thinking, Ruth being introduced to, to old Rahab. And what did you do before you got married? Oh, I, I was on the game, dear. <laughs> what a story of God's grace. And then kids were, were growing up. She became the great-great-grandmother uh, to David, the greatest king that Israel ever had. What an influence amongst the people of God. What stories to tell. Granny, <laughs> tell us about the spies who came to your house. All right, when you go to bed, I'll tell you. <laughs> Granny, what were you doing at that time? I was keeping an inn, dear. She became an ancestor to the Lord Jesus himself. 
Do you see what's happened? God has taken someone who might find great difficulty in being comfortable naturally in an evangelical church. He has worked in her life enough. He's incorporated her amongst his people. He's used her significantly at certain points. And when you open the New Testament and you start to read that list of names in Matthew chapter 1, there she is, named as one of the ancestors of the Lord Jesus. God can use you. God can use any of us. Do you believe it? Even if you haven't been a Christian very long, God can use you. Whatever your circumstances, God can use you. Do you believe it? Some of you will have heard of the story of of that American woman called Joni, who as I think a 17-year-old, in a diving accident, broke her neck. You would never have heard of her if it hadn't been for that. She has since travelled the world giving testimony and glory to God because of something that happened to her that you would think would have utterly disabled her. In fact, it was the secret of God using her. Some of you may have uh, years ago enjoyed the um, Bible paraphrases of a man called J.B. Phillips. He used to be a man uh, in in the church called Don Franks, who was always reading and quoting J.B. Phillips. You know, the J.B. Phillips, although he was in Christian ministry, he was an Anglican um, minister. He suffered from terrible depression all his life. It just used to take him down and down into darkness. And yet, because of that sensitive nature, God used him in the writing of these paraphrased versions of scripture, which spoke to so many in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Absolutely remarkable. I think of a man I met some years ago in Greece. His story Utterly astonishing. He was a young lad growing up on the island of Corfu during the um, 1940s. Uh, The German army had invaded Corfu, and it was starvation time. It was terrible. He was a lad in school. Um, The country had been overrun, and um, he was a bright boy. And he he got hold of a copy of Tolstoy's War and Peace. And in the front, um, at the beginning, there is um, a quotation, which says, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it remains alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. And he went to his English teacher at school. He said, what is this? Oh, it's a quotation from some old book, some some religious book. Which book? I think it's called the New Testament or the Bible or something. Have you uh, read it? No. I would like to read it. Have you got a copy? He said to the teacher. Yeah, I think I have somewhere. And the teacher offered to sell the New Testament to this young 14, 15 year old for a sack of potatoes. And so he gathered together a sack of potatoes and exchanged it for the New Testament. He read it and read it and read it, and as a 15-year-old, became a Christian. He thought he was the only Christian in the world, because he never met another. But he shared the gospel of Jesus that he'd come to discover with a friend of his in the same class, and the pair of them believed in Jesus. And then because they saw that, I mean, they thought they were the only two now, and because they saw uh, in, in some of those books of the New Testament that people in the early days used to stand up and preach, these two 15-year-old boys would do it. You can imagine, as the evening is settling in Corfu, you know, the cafe culture, there's the German soldiers sort of uh, parading about, and there are these two boys standing under trees preaching 
about Jesus. That caused quite a kerfuffle. A big Orthodox priest was called in. The boy was locked in his attic. His Bible was taken away. Uh, he was beaten by the priest. He was told that he absolutely must stop believing this stuff. He was separated from his other friend. Eventually, he was driven off the island. He went to Athens. He arrived there when he was about 17, I think. And he found his way to some extraordinary meetings that were going on in the parliament. The Germans had closed the Greek parliament. Great contribution to democracy. They closed down the Greek parliament. But a believer who happened to be working in the government, in the civil service, had asked, could he please use the parliament chamber for regular Bible teaching meetings? And so throughout the second half of the war, this man, Kostas Metalinos, was actually doing Bible teaching. He's like using the, the chamber of the House of Commons, you know, for, for Bible teaching. And people began to pour in. And this uh, young, a 17, 18-year-old, Miltos uh, Angelatos, came and suddenly discovered there were loads more Christians. And he began to absorb the teaching. Absolutely fascinating story. Totally lost contact with his parents. He became eventually Greece's senior um, archaeological and tourist guide. He also became the head of the Scripture Union in Greece, and he developed a tremendous burden for um, old people, because in, in Greek culture they weren't really being looked after, and, and some of the, the family networks were collapsing. So he started an old people's home, Christian-based old people's home. Do you know the first two people that applied to come were his own parents? And he led his father to Christ. And his father led his mother to Christ. And then the pair of them began to work amongst all the old people. And it was an amazing sort of mission started amongst the old people uh, on the edge of Athens. Wonderful. God using a 15-year-old boy who gets hold of the scriptures. And then builds an astonishing ministry out of that that touches all kinds of people. Many of you will have heard and, and will know about William Carey, no doubt, the, the shoe mender from Northampton, who went out at the end of the 18th century to India. That barely educated man, self-taught man, translated the Bible or parts of the Bible into 36 separate Indian languages. Unbelievable. Produced a Sanskrit dictionary. Um, Produced the first printing press in the East. Uh, introduced new methods of agriculture. It became, interestingly, a professor of botany at Calcutta University, as well as doing all this translation work. Uh, unbelievable story. But what you don't know, probably, is the story of his sister, who was paralyzed, who was bedbound, who remained in her bed back in Northamptonshire, writing William Carey, letters with a pencil held between her teeth. And she just lay there and prayed. You see, we, we know the story of Carey, and books and biographies and films and so on have been written. But when, when in the end the whole thing becomes plain to us, I think we will see a woman who had terrible disabilities actually plays a very significant part in the story because God uses her to pray. There was an evangelist um, years ago, over 100 years ago, I think, um, possibly a bit less, 
called Gypsy Smith. And a woman came to some of his meetings, and uh, she got converted. And she was much moved by Gypsy Smith's preaching, and it, it greatly helped her. And, and uh, she came around, she eventually wrote him a letter. She said, Dear Sir, I feel God is calling me to preach the gospel. The trouble is, I have twelve children. What shall I do? <laughs> and Gypsy Smith wrote back, Dear Madam, I am delighted to hear that God has called you to preach the gospel. I am even more delighted that he has provided you with a congregation. <laughs> <laughs> Even um, ministry to our children, they can go on to, to do great, significant things. I had an, an aunt in the 19th century um, who was a, a, an amazing woman of prayer. And she prayed, one of her prayers was that there would be preachers of the Bible and the gospel in every generation from her onwards, in our line of family, until Christ comes back. And she prayed that, if it be possible, Lord, may some of them have uh, opportunities to minister in India. I didn't discover that until after I'd come back from three years in India. Uh, and I, I found out that, in fact, has been so. In, in sort of about five or six generations since, they, they've all, all been there. God can use us if we trust him, if we ask him, Lord, use me in bigger ways than, than so far. Use my children. Use, you, don't, Lord, let me just accomplish what might be explainable merely by the natural. Lord, please use me to encourage, touch, teach, train, help, fund, transform larger situations that require you, O oh God. To be the explanation. It takes vision. It takes a habit of faithfulness. It takes persistence and prayer. That there might be people in heaven because of you. Last story. A Christian businessman um, whom I know was traveling um, in St. Petersburg. Um, and he was going to a piece of business, a uh, business meeting, with a man from Moldova. Moldova is uh, probably the poorest country these days in Europe. It's, it's a, a little bit at the southern end of what was the former um, Soviet Union. It's sort of trapped between Ukraine and Romania. They speak Russian and Romanian, and uh, it's a sort of mafia place, really. <laughs> I was there earlier this, this last year. <laughs> it, it, story is true. Anyway, um, this... Um, Christian businessman, was travelling to a business appointment in a taxi with a Moldovan. And the Moldovan began to talk to him as they were bumping along um, about a book that he'd found in his room the night before. And it fascinated him. And he didn't understand it. And he'd been dipping into this book and reading bits of it, uh, and he had a question. Who was a man called Isaiah? And who was the person that Isaiah... Uh, was talking about, who in some ways is like um, a sheep, and in other ways is like a shepherd. Who was this person? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Christian businessman is trying to keep a straight face, listening to this thing. Well, I think I have read this. Uh, yes. And why did these passages that he'd been reading seem to have so much meaning when he doesn't know what the meaning is? He has, you know, you, you get a sense. Oh, this feel feels um, important, but I'm not quite sure. What it means. 
And so he was asking the church to explain. And um, the Christian was able to explain the gospel as they were bumping along in the car over these Russian roads going to this business meeting. And um, arranged then for him to uh, receive a Bible uh, in the Romanian that he understood better when he got back to Moldova. And, and since he's got converted, I understand. Who put that original Bible in the room in St. Petersburg? You see? No, Gideon's probably. And probably Ken Nielsen or someone. <laughs> you see? You pray, you do something out of love and generosity and, and just as moved by the Spirit, and before you know where you are, that, under the, the sovereign guidance of God and his, his desire to use you, is having knock-on effect in Moldova. This is where the, um, the story of Rahab leads me. <laughs> All the way to Ken Nielsen, yes. Um, no, to, to simply uh, sharing this simple thing with you. God can use you. He wants to use you in more ways than perhaps you have already seen. Trust him, pray, let him, Rahab, with all her background, became someone who is honoured at the heart of God's unfolding story of his dealings with his people. And that's your God and mine. Right. You come back, and I'll pray at the end. We pray that you would stop us from looking at circumstances and impossibilities and cause us to bring our small faith to you and to trust you that you might magnify our impact and our ministry through prayer, (coughs) through our children, through lives that we touch, through friendships that we have. Oh God, do we pray more than we could ask or think even as we look not to anything else but to you, the Lord of power and might, the Lord of sovereign grace, the Lord whose heart is for the lost, the Lord of love, who came at Christmas, not to remain in some stable, but to see the world reached by ordinary people whose eyes are all on you. Keep us focused there, Lord, we pray, and trusting all the time for a bit more than we could calculate or work out in our own heads. Use us, we pray, for your name's sake. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. The Nigel Lee Archive is brought to you as a podcast by Living Leadership. For more information on the Nigel Lee Archive or Living Leadership's other ministries, please visit www.livingleadership.org. God bless.